Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Jeannie Sakata, who is the playwright of Hold These Truths, which is a one-person show playing at TheaterWorks Lucy Stern Theater in Palo Alto, now through August 5th. Jeannie Sakata, it's her only play. However, she is an actor, has appeared in several TV shows, including Dr. Ken, Desperate Housewives. She's performed at ACT, Berkeley Rep, several other places, and recently in a show called Figaro by Charles Morey at A Noise Within Theater down in Southern California. Hold These Truths is the story of a man named Gordon Hirabayashi, who was a Nisei, a Japanese student born in America, who fought internment during World War II. And before we go into discussing that, what happened was that the Supreme Court held up Executive Order 9066 and said that the internment was constitutional. In the recent court ruling regarding Trump's Muslim ban, Korematsu was finally overthrown, which would have been a day to celebrate for the children of Gordon Hirabayashi and the children of the other men who were involved in the suit. However, it was not. Yes, it was a sad day when we heard about the Supreme Court decision upholding the Muslim travel ban uh, because uh, as Karen Korematsu, who is the daughter of Fred Korematsu, so eloquently put it in a New York Times article, it, it was substituting one racial injustice for another. I think that many in the Japanese-American community had hoped for the day when Korematsu would be overruled. And when that day finally came, it was handed down in a decision that discriminated against another ethnic group. So it was something that couldn't really be celebrated. The children of Minyasui, Gordon Hirabayashi, and Fred Korematsu, and that would be Jay Hirabayashi, Hali Yasui, and Karen Korematsu have all issued statements about the Muslim travel ban and pointing out that it really didn't clear up the main issue, which was, is it constitutional to discriminate against a group of people on the basis of race and restrict their freedom? So they, as children of Min and Fred and Gordon, who all challenged in orders addressing this in the 1940s, felt this very deeply, and it's wonderful that they've been so outspoken. Jeannie Sakata, let's talk a little about how this show came to be. Uh, you were born in down in Watsonville. Yes. Your grandfather was interned, but never talked about it. Well, my grandfather was Issei, which is first-generation Japanese, so he was an immigrant, which meant he didn't speak a lot of English. My relationship with my grandfather I'm kind of on the youngest or the younger end of the cousin spectrum in terms of age. So my relationship with my grandfather uh, was one in which I would visit for holidays and he would ask me how my grades were <laughs> and say study hard and things like that. But we couldn't really converse much because I didn't speak Japanese as a child much, you know, and he didn't speak very much English. 
But my father, I had many times when I could observe how my father would react when I brought up the idea of the camps or asked him questions. And he would very quickly change the subject or just give me one-word answers. Like he told me the camp was very dirty. And that's about all he would say. How old was he in the camps? Oh, my father was in high school. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of my aunts and uncles from the Watsonville area had also had to go into, uh, it was Poston, the concentration camp in Poston, Arizona, is where they were. And, you know, they were young. They were young teenagers or younger than that, and, and they were traumatized by it, as were, you know, all the Nisei that went into the camps in the Nisei as well. So you were aware of this all along, but... Well, I wasn't really aware of it until I got to high school, and I saw something in one of my history books. It was maybe a paragraph about what had happened to Japanese Americans during World War II. Up until that time, I don't think I could have consciously articulated an awareness of it. I would hear reference to the camps or you know, World War II, but it was all very hush-hush. And I think I couldn't really articulate what had happened until I got to high school and I read that paragraph in my in my high school textbook and started asking questions. But I think that my own political consciousness wasn't really raised till I got to UCLA, where I went to college, and took an Asian American studies class. And then I really started finding out in detail what had happened to Japanese Americans during World War II, and I started asking more questions. But I could get very little out of my relatives, my aunts and uncles. They clearly did not want to talk about it in detail. Meanwhile, you wanted to be a writer, but got sidetracked into performing arts. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I was an English major, English literature major, and I had planned on perhaps uh, you know, writing but I think that when I encountered, you know, the greatest literature in the English language in my literature classes, I doubted whether I could write. And I started to think about going into library science, um, being a lover of books. And so I was actually accepted into the Graduate School of UCLA Library Science and Library and Information Science. Uh, but around that time, I got married. And um, I had decided to go into library science at a time when California was severely cutting back funding to libraries and had just passed initiatives severely cutting funding to libraries. So I decided that I would put my husband through school so that we wouldn't have student debt, student loan debt, and in the meantime sort of contemplate what I wanted to do. And while I was working full-time to support my husband uh, going through graduate school, I thought back to the time at UCLA when I had met people in the Asian American Studies Department and the Asian American Studies Center. And I had learned about an Asian American theater company called East West Players. They were an intimate theater company, less than 99 seats in East Hollywood. And I decided, because I had just taken an acting class at UCLA as an elective, that I was going to explore this idea of acting and I thought I would just sort of do it as a lark. But what happened is I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with the stage. And 
I decided that I was going to try and go for it. <laughs> and so East West Players was having its first uh, summer workshop where they had classes and acting and dance and movement and uh, playwriting. And so I just jumped in and from there it was a done deal. There's a difference between working at a small company and suddenly getting television and film roles. Got an agent and began doing the audition thing? Yes. Well, this all happens little by little. Right. Uh, what happened was I was understudying in a lot of plays at Useless Players. I understudied, I think, in about four or five plays before I had a chance to actually play uh, a role there. And back then they had a membership. So everybody kind of did everything. You cleaned the toilets, you did box office, you stage managed, you did props as well as acted. And so that was a great training. And from there, I started branching out and getting work in other L.A. theaters and then started auditioning for regional theaters. So I started going out of town and doing out-of-town theater, um, Syracuse Stage, um, uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Portland, Arizona Theater Company. I did a couple productions of M. Butterfly when it was, you know, a new play. And from then, you know, things just start happening. Then I got an agent. The agent started sending me out. I started to get a few TV jobs here and there. But my first love was the stage back then. And uh, I still love theater. Jeannie Sakata, you're getting your career going. And you've never written a play, though you did want to be a writer. Yes. I mean, I know that you saw a PBS documentary on Gordon, and that prompted your interest in getting the play together. Yes. But what prompted you to go, hey, I want to write a play. I want to do this. <laughs> oh, this is really a delightful question to answer every time I'm asked, because uh, what happened was I just got obsessed I could not stop thinking about this story, I think for a number of reasons. I just had a very deep psychic need for this story at that time in my life. And I would go to bed thinking about it, wake up thinking about it. It was just like a weight sitting on my head. I mean that in the best way possible. I felt like I didn't have a choice. I had to sit down and wrestle with this story. And there's no better way to wrestle with a story, you know, its soul and spirit and its bones, and to try and write about it. <laughs> was the idea always one person? Were you thinking, well, I could dramatize scenes? Yes. Uh, initially, when I first saw Gordon's photo in a book, I saw his young face. I'm immediately enthralled, thinking that this young student in his early 20s, took on the U.S. government, said, no, I'm an American citizen. I stand on my constitutional rights. It just fascinated me. It enthralled me. At the time, in the 1990s, one-person show, was, they were not as common as they are now. It was a newer art form. And so I had just seen a handful of them, maybe not even that many, maybe two or three. And one was an Asian-American actress named Jude Narita. She did a show in Los Angeles where she played five different characters, you know, each a unique monologue. So this is very much on my mind. I was really blown away by it. And I thought it was a powerful form of storytelling. And so that was in my mind when I saw Gordon's picture and saw that article. I immediately said, it would be a great one-person show. 
So that was my initial inspiration. And then as I went through the writing process over the next 10 years, I tried different things. I tried writing it as a multi-character play, as a screenplay, just experimenting with the best way to tell the story. But in the end, I, I came back to the one-person show. At what point did you decide to contact Gordon directly? I think what happened is that I read five or six different articles about him. And then being an actor myself, I got a job in Seattle where the University of Washington houses a special collection of the letters that Gordon wrote during World War II. What happened was that I met a young student who gave me his contact information and said she had just interviewed him in Seattle for a term paper she was writing. He was a retired professor of sociology living in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, but his letters were still housed at the University of Washington. So I called Gordon up and I said, I've never written a play before, but I'm an actor. I'm enamored of your story. I'd like to try. Could I interview you? And he was very welcoming. Um, I am not the first person to write about Gordon's story for the stage. That would be Rick Shiomi, uh, who until very recently headed up the um, theater move in Minneapolis. Gordon's story had been dramatized by Rick years ago, but it was a whole different format. It was a courtroom drama, and I really wanted to take a whole different approach uh, to this. So Gordon was um, really lovely. He invited me up to interview him. The first set of interviews was done at his brother's home in Glen Ellen, right up here in the Bay Area. Gordon had two brothers. One lived in Mill Valley and one lived in Glen Ellen. And so when I called him in Seattle and asked to interview him, he said, hey, I'm going to be visiting my brother in Glen Ellen and I'm going to need a ride up to visit my <laughs> other brother. And so I took him from Jim Hirabayashi's home in Mill Valley up to Edward's home in Glen Ellen. And then that was great because, you know, I got a chance to see the three brothers together and see what that dynamic was between the three brothers, which was lovely. And then I got a chance to have lunch with not only Gordon, but Ed and his wife. And they started reminiscing about growing up on the farm. And I just started taking mental notes and got very quiet and just let them talk. Did they talk about their own internment at that point? Uh, they talked more about growing up on the farm. Okay. But some of these were great stories. Like they talked about uh, when their cousins would visit and they would splash around in the Japanese outdoor bath or the ofuro. So that story or story that is derived from that reminiscence that we had that afternoon is at the front of the play. Right, because it tells the story growing up as well. So you get to interview him a couple of times. And what other research did you do before you sat down and began to actually write it or as you were writing it? Well, I researched what happened in general with uh, the curfew and Executive Order 9066. I researched a lot about the Seattle Japanese-American community. I did a lot of research about Gordon's family, about his parents. I wanted to know what his background was and what sort of family he came from. I thought that was really important to show that this was a family, you know, that was affected by this. And I also did a lot of reminiscing about my own college years and about growing up in Watsonville in a Japanese-American farming family. It was a world I felt like I knew well. After a certain point, we had done the premiere of a play at East West Players in 2007, and then we had a workshop of the play in New York where I was advised to kind of create a bigger canvas for the backdrop of the play. 
uh, New York Theater Workshop people had said, we're very curious to know, in addition to Gordon's personal story, what was going on in the country that allowed this mass violation of constitutional rights to happen? Who were the people that were responsible? Um, what were the forces at play in California and nationally that allowed it to happen? So more of that got added in. Let's go back one step. So you've been writing this play. Did the people at East West know you were writing it and saying, okay, Jeannie, is it ready yet? <laughs> uh, well, I had a wonderful mentor, Che Yu, uh, who is now the artistic director of the Victory Gardens Theater in Chicago. But back then in the 1990s, Che was heading up the Asian-American arm of the Center Theater Group at Mark Taper Forum, the workshop, the Asian Theater Workshop. And Che's job was to develop new works about the Asian community, Asian-American community. I've worked with Che as an actor. He's not only a playwright, but now he's a wonderful director and artistic director. And I went to Che at some point after I'd worked on it, and I said, I have this story I'm working on, and I'd love to get your opinion. So Che listened, and he said, I think that's a very important story. And so he was one of my many mentors in, in writing it, and he gave me a commission to finish it. And long story short, I finally finished it, and I started submitting it to theaters. And, of course, East West Players was the most natural place to take it since I had gotten my start there as an Asian-American actor. So uh, they looked at it. They heard a reading of it. They said, we love it. We want to do it. It eventually wound up off-Broadway. 2012. So we premiered the play at 2007 in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles. And what happened was another mentor that I've been fortunate to have, Len Berkman. He is a well-known dramaturg and theater professor at University of Massachusetts in Amherst. But he goes all over the country to help playwrights, dramaturging new works. And Len was a regular in coming out to help works in progress develop at the Mark Taper Forum. So I was in a playwrights group at the Mark Taper Forum because of Che's commission. And Len had come out and heard the first half of the play. And I called Len when I had finished my first draft, which was three and a half hours long. And I said, help, Len, please help me. I don't know what to cut and what to keep. So Len helped me know what to cut and keep. And luckily he was in town and he came to see our 2007 world premiere at East West Players. And he said, you know, I have a son who has a theater in New York, an epic theater ensemble, and I would love for my son to know about this play. So he sent it to his son. And four or five years later, that's when we had our off-Broadway premiere of the epic. Jeannie Sakata, Joel De La Fuente, well, he's probably best known for his role now in Man in the Man High, High Castle. Castle. Yes. How did he come on board? Did he approach you guys? Did he do an audition? Uh, no, what happened was we had done a reading in New York at the Lark Play Development Center. And uh, this reading was with another brilliant New York actor named Tom Sesma, and it was directed by Lisa Rothi. And some time passed. We were invited to uh, workshop the play at uh, Dartmouth with the New York Theater Workshop. Tom was unavailable. I think I believe he was uh, doing The Lion King, a tour. And Lisa said, you know, I know another actor who would be fabulous for this. I went to school with him. His name is Joel De La Fuente. I had heard Joel's name many times. We have many friends in common. 
And I had nothing but good things about Joel, wonderful things. Everybody, I said, Joel must be one of the most loved people in New York because all I hear is, we love Joel Duplante, we love Joel Duplante. And a casting director, we were consulting, recommended him. I think that the Epic knew him. Uh, the New York Theater Workshop knew his work. So it just felt like it was meant to be. And I actually met Joel on the train station, Penn Station, before we boarded the train to go to Dartmouth. So that's the first time I ever met Joel. Did he ever meet Gordon before Gordon passed away? Or no? no, unfortunately, he did not. He's met members of his family, though, and they've all complimented his performance. A character in the play, Art Barnett, who was one of Gordon's legal counsels, and we met a relative of Art's. I believe it was his nephew. And he said, it's so eerie how you play my uncle. You play him just like I knew him. When I was reading about the play, Daniel Day Kim was involved at one point? Yes, Daniel and Joel are very good friends. They went to school together at NYU. And Daniel actually has said that Joel inspired him to go into acting. Dan was on his way to either pre-med or was on his way to a legal career. One of those two... But I think he had a great love of, you know, acting, and he said that Joel inspired him to go for it. Uh, what happened was Daniel was working on Hawaii Five-0 at the time, okay. and so he was and living in Hawaii. And Joel told him he was doing this solo show called Hold These Trues, and he said, "I'd love for you to come out and see it if you could." So Daniel flew out to New York to support Joel, and he said, "Wow, I'd like to bring this to Hawaii." So Daniel teamed up with the Honolulu Theater for Youth in Honolulu and brought Joel and Lisa out, and we did, I think, two weeks. That was lovely. Given the large Japanese-American population Absolutely. in Hawaii, it, it must have made quite an impression then. Yes, that's why Daniel wanted to bring it there. One of the reasons he said he wanted the Honolulu community to see world-class performance by his dear friend Joel. And it was fascinating to do the play there because in Hawaii, of course, Asians are not a minority. And there was a whole different reaction on the part of many Asians in the audience on opening night. You know, there's a line in the play, I don't know if I can actually repeat it here, where there's a, a racist guy at the beginning of the play and says, gather my country, you fucking Japs. And when we did that scene opening night in Honolulu, there were audible gasps in the audience. And I looked around and coming from Asians. And I thought that's really fascinating because if you do a play, as we did Holy Shoes on the West Coast in Los Angeles, that's nothing new for people to hear. It's a horrible thing to hear anytime, but it's nothing new. But it was new for them to hear. Uh, afterwards, people in the audience were saying, you know, it's just that we're not a minority here. It's very interesting because I think that anyone on the West Coast in the Japanese-American community, it's painful to hear that. You know, our parents were called that all the time. Some of us have been called that, you know. You know, all those racial epithets, they hurt. The connotations and the trauma of those words run deep. There's one point in the play where Gordon says, to the Supreme Court, to President Roosevelt, to the people running the government, I am no more than a Jap. And I meant that to be almost like a slap that hits the air and hits the face of the audience as well as, you know, the character of Gordon. 
that realization that his humanity and his patriotism and his citizenship has all been reduced down to this three-letter ugly word. When I watched the play, I had a problem focusing because, and you you mentioned before we went on the air, you had a similar problem I watching did. it. Because what's going on now with the tension of refugees and children in cages, it's hard to stay focused on the past when the present is as bad. I mean, what are your thoughts about how the play, the words haven't changed, but the play on some level has? That did happen to me last night. I started thinking about everything that's going on in the news now. and. I think what happens in those moments for me is since my family actually did go through these ugly experiences, uh, I, as a Sansei, have never lived behind barbed wire myself. I don't know what it's like to lose my community and my friends and, you know, have to go live off in the desert. But it's down there in my own psyche because I grew up, you know, sort of absorbing the pain of what my family had gone through. I remember when I read Barack Obama's first autobiography, Dreams of My Father, and I think in his second book, The Audacity of Hope, and in one of those books, he he talks about when people say, you know, times are so bad right now, we're so discouraged. One thing he said that really struck me was, things are bad, but you know that people that came before us went through much worse times. You know, what was it like to have been in the South when you couldn't sit at a lunch counter and when you protested that and were beaten? And what was it like to, you know, walk across the bridge in Selma? We have to look to the people that came before us and clear the way for us. As as bad as things are getting now, there are those that have come before us who went through much worse. So that's what I'm trying to cling to hope because of that, you know. Well, there's a sequence where Gordon in the play is talking about not being allowed in certain restaurants, being thrown out of stores. And for me, from New York, because then he goes to New York and it doesn't, nobody even pays any attention. Yeah, because there weren't Japanese Americans, you know, on the <laughs> East Coast, like the, all the racism was on the West Coast, and there were very few Japanese you know, in New York. So, and, and in New York, I mean, it's such a melting pot that an Asian is not going to be thrown out of anywhere. And for me to hear that, it's like, holy cow, the West Coast was in some respects segregated like the South. Yes, yes. Well, because the Asian immigrants, of course, so many of them were on the West Coast. And that's where, you know, uh, for example, white farmers wanted to get the Japanese farmers out of California so they were lobbying Congress. Yeah, put them in the camps. You know, throw them behind barbed wire. Something's we want to get rid of the competition. Some things don't change. Some things don't change. Yeah. Wow. The name of the play was changed. Why? In the beginning, when I was writing the play, Dawn's Light had occurred to me as title number one because it's you know in the national anthem that phrase, and two because I love the idea of. Gordon's journey in the play being one of enlightenment. You know, one thing I love about Gordon's story is that he doesn't set out intending to rebel against anything. He's obedient with the curfews, obedient with the forced removal orders, even after he disobeys the curfew orders. It's all a gradual realization for him. 
And this, I think, is something that enables the audience to really connect to Gordon. Uh, so I loved the sort of metaphor of the path of enlightenment. And um, third, uh, because Gordon's hitchhiking journey, which is a detailed story that I was so enamored of, it began in the early morning. You know, he said he walked out there at dawn and stuck his thumb out. Uh, so it's sort of a way, that title was a way to sort of, you know, be connected to all three of those things. And what happened was when we went to New York with the show, uh, there was a theater company that was thinking of co-producing it with the Epic Theater Ensemble. And uh, the artistic director of that theater mentioned that she felt Dawn's Light wasn't a really dynamic title because it could be about anything. And was I open to changing the title? And I said, well, I'll, I'll brainstorm. So we, all of us were connected with play, started brainstorming. And my friend, Zach Berkman, who was one of the leaders of the Epic Theater Ensembles, I had sent Zach sort of a list of phrases from the Constitution and the Declaration. One was, hold, we hold these truths, which was so obvious. It was too obvious. And Zach said, what about that title without the we? And then I thought, you know, that's exactly what Gordon does in the play. Jeannie Sakata, why is this the only play? I'm an actor as well. For many years that I was writing a play, it was very difficult to write and act at the same time. It really feels in a visceral sense that it comes out of different parts of the brain. You know, when you're writing, there's a free-flowingness to the initial stages when you're just trying to get it all on the paper. But then there's something very analytical and very much about structure and form when you're trying to carve it and shape it into a play. It's structural. It's craft. When I'm acting, it just feels like it's a different muscle. And I couldn't do both of them at the same time for many years. And maybe that's one reason it took me so long to write the play. And I like to think that I'm better at it now because I am trying to work on some new ideas. And I'm able to switch back and forth uh, much better than I used to. <laughs> so I like to think that's one reason why. Sakata. <laughs> As an Asian actor, did you find that really inhibiting or was it just inhibiting in terms of television or not? Well, I think that many of us Asian American actors for a long time have felt restricted in what we have been able to do and what we have been able to portray. And I think we've come a long ways. Uh, Sandra Oh was just nominated for an Emmy and she's the first actress of Asian ancestry to be nominated in the category of lead actress in a drama series. And this is huge. This is something we've been waiting for for years to happen. And I'm so thrilled for Sandra because she's an exceptionally talented actor from Canada, Asian Canadian. She lives here now. Her nomination is just a great inspiration to all of us. It's changing, but at the same time, we still have to battle situations where there is an Asian role that an Asian actor could easily play and it's given to a white actor and they make up the white actor to quote unquote look Asian or let's say that they adapt uh, a novel into a screenplay for a film well sometimes what they do is they take a character who is Asian in the novel and they change it into a white character. Scarlett Johansson. Yes, absolutely. So this is what we're still battling. At the same time we're making progress, we're still battling this. And we just have to have more people uh, behind 
the camera in terms of writing, producing, directing. You know, Daniel Day Kim is now the executive producer of one of the hottest shows on television right now, The Good Doctor. So this is all, you know, tremendous progress on the part of our community, and we're hoping more, more and more will happen. There are different Asian communities. There's Korean, there's Chinese, there's Japanese. Yes. And, of course, there's people who are multiple. Yes, and mixed race. Here we are talking about a one-person show, and the person who's doing it, Joel de La Fuente, is Malaysian, Filipino, Spanish, Portuguese. Is it at all an issue between races where somebody who is not Japanese is playing Japanese, or you might get a role as a Chinese woman and you're Japanese-American? Well, I think it depends on the context. You know, if there is a certain role that requires a certain kind of skill, say someone who is required to do Beijing opera moves, an acrobatic Beijing opera moves, or someone who is required to portray someone who is from a certain ethnic background where something needs to be conveyed has to do with a certain sort of physicality or an authenticity of accent. Sometimes in certain situations like that, I can understand why people would say, I want someone who can portray this with a great degree of authenticity. But other times, there are many roles where, let's say the character is American-born, Asian-American, Chinese-American, Korean-American, Japanese-American, but has no accent. You know, someone who is like me, an Asian-American born here. Then ethnicity, it can really be played by an Asian-American actor of any ethnicity. So for me, I think the vast majority of roles that I've encountered could be played by Asian actors of any ethnicity, as is the case with white actors. You know, someone like Meryl Streep has played all kinds of ethnicities, you know, European ethnicities, and she's played, what, Polish and, you know, American, English. And so we want that same sort of freedom. Hopefully we'll have more of that in the future. You know, someone asked me, in light of the challenge that Asian actors face nowadays where someone like Scarlett Johansson is playing an Asian character. If someone came to me and said, you know, I have a really talented young Caucasian actor who would love to play Gordon, what would you say? And I said, I would say, what is the context? Is it like a high school presentation where there are no Asian actors anywhere in the immediate vicinity or even the surrounding vicinity? And they want to actually present Gordon's story as a lesson in civil rights. And there's a young Caucasian actor that wants to present uh, the situation that Gordon was in by, you know, doing the stage reading. I wouldn't object to that. If, however, it was a presentation of the play that was a dramatic a presentation of like the this. play, you know, it's important to see that the, the character on stage is Asian. So in that case, I would insist that the actor was Asian. It, it really depends on, you know, I was actually uh, approached once by someone that said, you know, I have an idea of taking your play into a high school and having young people of all different ethnicities play Gordon in a stage reading. They each take their turn. Yeah. And I thought that was an amazing idea because Gordon's story, although he is specifically Japanese-American, really is about all Americans. Jeannie Sakata 
you've been acting since the 90s, mm-hmm. the Me Too movement. Did you hit issues along the way of that sort? Yes. Yes, I definitely have experienced a couple incidents of, you know, sexual harassment or, you know, just violation of personal space, you know, come-ons and inappropriate remarks, things like that. I think most women have. And hopefully the Me Too movement will change some of that. I think that, you know, in the theater world, in the regional theater world, there have been instances that have been brought to light and some artistic directors or some directors um, have been called out on their behavior. So we hope that it'll get better, you know, and as well in the TV and film industry where I understand it's rampant. I guess now there's some sort of at least vindication on the part of you and other actresses that this is coming to light, even if the president of the United States won't acknowledge it. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of people that won't acknowledge it. And I think that, you know, all you can do is own your authenticity and the authenticity of your experience. That was a watershed moment when those articles first started appearing about uh, Weinstein and then others. Uh, it's, It's an ugly thing to confront and an ugly thing to have to talk about, but it's it's necessary. It's necessary for, you know, the workplace to become a safer place for all of us. And when you saw the articles, you're going, thank God it's finally coming out. Yeah, you know, I think that so many people, so many women, I have not experienced it nearly as much as some of my friends, but I was afraid to speak out. A lot of these men that have done this are in positions of power. And, you know, a lot of even very well-known actresses that spoke out in, like, the Ronan Farrow article, you know, these men have power over their careers. It's very hard to speak out because... You know, I think in the case of Mira Sorvino, uh, she found out actual evidence that she was blacklisted among certain directors. Yeah, it's it's a frightening thing. And, you know, I think that when you're young and you're impressionable and, you know, you're, you're wanting to have that career and you want every opportunity to show what you can do, it's very easy, I think, to let fear get the best of you. On the one hand, ambition to be an actor, and on the other hand, putting up with crap. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring that up because Gordon Hirabayashi, I'll tie this into Gordon's story, once talked about the reaction of Nisei to the whole camp experience as one actually almost like a rape victim, almost a denial that it, you almost have to deny it happened because it was so horrible. And they didn't talk about it for many years, the Nisei and Issei. They did not want to talk about it like my parents my family. And it was only until years later when uh, Congress held hearings in the 1980s that many of the camp survivors came forward. But up to that point, there was so much fear and so much trauma uh, operating. They just wanted to move on with their lives. They were afraid if they talked about it, all that would come back on them again, all that shame, all that blame. So in some ways, it's uh, interesting. There are definite parallels when there's trauma and a kind of victimization that people experienced. It's the same sort of working through fear to find your voice that has to happen. Jeannie Sakata, now this is here, and you're an actor. What have you got coming up? Any TV shows, films, or plays? Well, I had a recurring role on 
Big Hero 6, which is a TV series that will debut in the fall, an animated series based on the hit movie. So I can't say what I played or anything about the plot, but um, that was very, very fun to do as my two nieces, and they were big fans of Big Hero 6. And uh, beyond that, I'm trying to write a second play. But as an actor, you just keep auditioning until you get that next job. I just finished a play called Romeo and Juliet, uh, a requiem at People's Light and Company, a theater in just outside of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. And this was a special experience because I got to work with Zach Berkman, who brought Hildy's Truths to New York with the Epic Theater Ensemble. So Zach is now with People's Light. And it was just a joy to do Shakespeare again. I haven't done Shakespeare in a long time. So now I'll be auditioning and looking for that next job, the life of an actor. Hold These Truths at Theater Works Lucy Stern Theater in Palo Alto through August 5th. And for more information, you can go to theaterworks.org.